Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its thoughts and desires. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of God. We're going into Ephesians, and uh, for the past month we've been looking at the book of Ephesians, and we've been saying that the Ephesians uh, teaches us the meaning of church, the foundations of the church, why it's important, its significance, what does it mean? And today, we're going into one of the richest passages about what it means to be a Christian, the foundations of being uh, in the church. Now, keep in mind, chapter 1 of Ephesians focused on salvation from God's perspective, and chapter 2 of Ephesians focuses on salvation from our perspective, man's perspective. Two times, verses 4 and 10, by grace you have been saved. What does that mean? Three things today we're going to learn. Verses 1 to 3, where we were. That's our condition. Verses 8 to 10, where God desires for us to be. And the bridge, right in the middle, verses 4 to 7, how do you get there? Where we were, where God desires us to be, How do we get there? First, we're going to look at where we were, verses 1 to 3. It tells us about our condition. Uh, Right off the bat, what does Paul say? You were dead. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. He doesn't say we're dying. He doesn't say we're sleeping. He doesn't say we were sick. He says you were dead. Verse 2, you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Verse 3, you followed the desires and thoughts of your sinful nature. What does that mean? In the Greek, the word follow, it, it, it's a lot deeper and richer than what we see here in our English translations. The word follow, it means to be controlled by something. It means to be mastered by something. In other words, what the text is saying is that you were dead in your sins and you are enslaved by your sin. Now, when you're dead, when you're enslaved, you can't help yourself. You can't rescue yourself. What are you enslaved to? He says three things. One, verse two, to the ways of the world. You are enslaved to the ways of the world. Two, he says, you are enslaved to the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's the devil. That's the devil. He owns you. That's what he said. He enslaves you. And lastly, number three, he says, verse three, you are enslaved to the desires and the thoughts of your sinful nature. So what he's saying is you are dead in your transgressions. You were dead in your sins. You are enslaved by the devil. 
You were enslaved by your thoughts and your desires, the thoughts and desires of your sinful nature. The phrase sinful nature in the Greek is the word sarks. Uh, it's translated to mean flesh, but it's not, he's not talking about your outer flesh. That's not what the word means. He's not talking about your physical body. He's talking about your core, what's at the heart of your flesh, the innermost desires of your heart. He's talking about your pride. He's talking about your self-centeredness. Paul's saying that's what, this, what controls you. That's what drives your desires. That's what drives your thoughts. Now, you go all the way back to the first book of the Bible in Genesis. You have Abel. You have Abel. God favored Abel. And you have his brother, Cain. It's a famous story. Cain and Abel. God favored Abel and Cain. He just despised God because of that. He despised Abel because of that. He's very angry. Why? Because he believed, I deserve. I deserve to be accepted by God. What does God do? God sits there and he counsels Cain. In his grace, he's counseling Cain. And mainly what he says is this. He says, sin is crouching at your door, Cain. It desires to have you. It desires to master you. It desires to enslave you, your thoughts, everything about you. But you must master it. Now, why do we do the things that we do? This passage teaches us that it's because we are driven, we are enslaved by the desires and thoughts, by our own desires, by, by our own thoughts. And we have no one else to blame but our own pride, our own selfishness, our own self centeredness The great theologians, uh, St. Augustine and actually Martin Luther, they both say this, that the human heart is, they use the phrase, incur, in, incurvatus in se. It's curved in itself. It's curved in on itself. It's always looking at itself. Your heart, what he's saying is, what they're saying is, your heart is so self-centered, so self-justifying, so defensive, so self-absorbed, and it's natural. It's instinctive in your life that it uses even God for your glory, for your purposes. Our sinful hearts use everything around us to serve itself. And our sinful hearts serve nothing but itself. We're like the Terminator, our hearts. Relentless. You seen the movie Terminator? Relentless. Uses everything and anything as a tool for what? Our hearts use everything and anything as a tool for our own vanity. And it will never stop. It's relentless. It will never stop until you're completely controlled, until you're completely ruined, until you're completely in misery. Our hearts are like computers, microprocessors, constantly taking in everything, everything around us, constantly processing everything around us, taking in everything to make it a tool for its own benefit, for its own self-service, for its own happiness, our own glory, our own self-preservation, our own reputations, our own comfort and power, our own delight. We're constantly asking ourselves, how can this help me? What can this do for me? What's in it for me? We look at people and things and jobs and careers and salaries that way, and it makes us, oh, it makes us jealous people. It makes us manipulative people. It makes us nasty people. It makes us very angry and competitive people, right? That's what it does. Uh, it makes us very anxious people. And it can also make you incredibly sweet. It can make you incredibly moral and kind because the heart 
always wants you, your heart always wants you to feel good about itself. And what better way than to have people view you as kind and generous and sweet and wise and good and your heart makes you work for it and you're constantly working for people's approval, for glory, for security, for reputation, for comfort, for power and the heart makes you sacrifice, sacrifice your body, sacrifice your joys, your, your lesser joys in life. And so as a result, you're tired and you're anxious and you're exhausted and you put pressure on people and pressure on things, pressure on your families and your salaries and your jobs and your career, pressure on your kids, your own heart and your own mind and your own strength because we are desperate. Even our children are tools. They are tools for your glory. We're not doing things for the community, Easter outreach, things like this that we do as a church. We're not doing things for the community or for our church. When you live like this, you're not doing it for your family or your church or your community. You're doing it for you and only, only for you. If, it's not, if there's nothing in it for you, you will not do it. St. Augustine, Martin Luther, they were right. Our hearts are incurvatus in se. Our hearts are curved in on themselves. It's all for you, which is why you will only be faithful to God as he can be of use to you. Now, what happens? What's the result? Misery. That's the result. Verse 3, Paul says, you're gratifying the cravings of your sinful nature. Now, the Greek word cravings here is the word epithymia. It means over-desire, inordinate desire, like an addiction. You're gratifying the addictions, the over-desires of your selfishness. That's what he's saying. Paul's saying your pride, your self-centeredness, it's starving. Your pride, your ego is hungry and it's craving. And so we're desperate to feed this craving. We're going to feed it with everything. It's like an addiction. And like any opiate, if you're addicted to your own ego, if you're living for yourself and only for yourself, nothing you get, nothing you receive, nothing you earn will ever be enough. It's, you're constantly craving. You need more. You need more. You need to get that fix. So there's this drivenness in you, and you don't even know at times that we're driven. We don't know how sick we are. You think you control it. That's the self-deception. We think we can control this when really it has you. It's controlling you. People are trying to speak into you subtly, maybe blatantly, maybe overtly, but you don't listen because that's our hearts, self-justifying, self-absorbed, constantly defensive. That's the nature of addiction. And, and the nature of addiction, it leads to what? Misery. It doesn't matter what you're addicted to, right? Any addiction, it's going to lead to misery. Lethargy. Spiritual ruin. That's where all this is taking us. That's what Paul's saying. As we gratify the over-desires of our sinful nature. And Paul says, as a result, by nature, we are objects of wrath. It's the misery of the wrath of hell living in us. And it starts with this hunger. It starts with, well, it starts with the pride and the self-centeredness. But it creates this craving, this desire, this neediness. And we're feeding it and feeding it. And eventually that, me that misery grows. That misery grows, but the misery grows in proportion to the hunger. And so we're constantly feeding it. And as a result, we're feeding our misery. Essentially, that's what we're doing. Until one day, all you have in life is misery. That's what hell is. Hell is the absence of any joy, any delight. Hell is only the presence of misery, distant, 
dark and apart from God. Now, there are people here, as an example, they're saying this, I'm going to meet with this person, and I'm going to tell them exactly how I feel about them, how much they hurt me, what they did to me. Why? Because certain people in your life, they make you feel bad. There are people, I mean, I'm a pastor, trust me, there are going to be people that make you feel bad. There are people in this room that make you, that just, they're just unfair. You feel like you've been treated unfairly here. And they make you feel low. And you're dwelling on it. You just can't stop thinking about it. And it makes you miserable. You almost feel like there's a prison and you're in it. And that prison, the prison cells, the walls are anger and pride and vengefulness. That is what? That's the seed of hell. And that seed of hell, as it sprouts, creates desires, cravings vengefulness, pride, constantly. If you don't uproot that today, what happens is it eventually becomes a forest of hell. That prison sentence has maximum security. Only real repentance will uproot it. Every time you say, I'm going to advance what's in it for me at your cost, you're going to do whatever you can to preserve how you feel about yourself. And it's never going to cure the addiction. We think, if I could just have this amount, that's going to cure the addiction. It won't. It's going to make it worse. It's going to make you more proud. It's going to make you more angry. And if you live like that for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you're going to die lonely. I'm telling you right now, you're going to die a lonely life until you end up in the ultimate loneliness and darkness of hell. Now, as a pastor in a church plant like this, It's a privilege. It's an amazing thing sometimes when I observe and watch two people who used to say, you know what, my life, my glory at your cost. And so you see them arguing and competing and fighting and you see them envious and jealous of each other. But then a spark. And one person says, you know what, I realize I'm a very selfish person. First of all, it's impossible to admit that to the core unless God is working in your life. To the core where you say, I need help. I can't help myself. I'm addicted to this. I'm a selfish person. I want you to advance even if I don't. I'm willing to sacrifice my advancement for you. Rather than being about my life at your cost and stepping over people to get ahead, whatever that means, How about I press for your advancement, your life, at my cost? You know what happens in a community like that? Warmth sets in. Trust sets in. What's happening? What you're saying is, I'm no longer going to feed this addiction. I refuse. I'm going to starve this addiction. I'm going to starve it to death. Now, it's going to feel like death. That's why Paul in the Bible says, I die every day. It's going to feel like death. When you die to yourself, It feels like that. That's why it's called dying to yourself. That's repentance. What happens? That seed starts to die. And humility is born. Real worship is born. Real genuine service is born. Delight, intimacy with God, joy in Christ is born. That's where we were. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. Now, where does God want us to be? Where does God desire us to be? Verse 8, he says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. In other words, you're not saved by how religious you are. You're not saved by how good you are. You're not saved by how well you've uh, obeyed the rules. You're not saved by how moral you are. Isn't this Christianity? Aren't I in a church? Real Christianity, true religion, does not rely on your goodness, your morals, your religiosity. Your lifestyle does change, but as a response to the gospel. And the gospel is not, if, you're, if the gospel is, I'm saved, I'm accepted by God because I obey, that's not good news. You're going to be working. There's the envy, there's the jealousy, there's the exhaustion, there's the anxiety. You'll never know where you stand with God. Paul says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, not from yourselves. You're not saved because you're raised better. You're not saved because you're more generous or because you serve better or more. Salvation, he says, it is the gift of God. It's a gift. That means your life, everything you are, everywhere you've been, everything you have is a gift. This passage says it's through faith and this not from yourselves. In other words, even faith is a gift of God. Even faith is not from yourself. It is a gift of God. You trust that everything is a gift. When you can do that, when you can rest on the truth that everything you have, everything you've been given is a gift, then there's a peace that sets in. And a text says, so that no one can boast. When you live a life trusting that your life, even your faith, is given to you by God and you did nothing to earn it, you did nothing to deserve it, there's no more boasting. That's the end of snobbiness. That's the end of boasting. It kills your ego. The humility of being in Christ kills your ego because you did nothing to earn it. That makes you no different from the next person who received it. That means anybody next to you can receive it because they did nothing to earn it or receive it. It's given to them as a gift. It is a miracle of God based on his love and his grace. That kills your ego, kills your pride. It kills your selfishness because you never earned it. You never des deserved it. That's the end of jealousy and snobbiness and anger and the competition. You see that? It kills your ego, kills your pride. What's boasting? Boasting is giving yourself confidence to face something difficult on your own by saying, I'm talented enough, I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, I'm pretty enough, I can do this, I'll get through this, I've gotten through it before, I can do it again. The Christian life kills boasting. Why? Because what I just said, that I'm talented enough and good enough, pretty enough, smart enough, that's a lie. The Christian life forces you to face the lie that you can do it on your own and instead face the reality that you can't and you never could. You were never in control. That's a lie to think that I could be in control if I just have the right salary. I could be in control of my life. I can do the things that I want to do. That's all a mirage. It's a self-deception. You're facing the reality that you can't do it alone. You can't do it on your own. If you're driven by your ego, if we're driven by our ego, we're all looking to find that one something that's going to give us a sense of worth. A lot of times in our day today, now, 60 years ago, America put that into their families. We're kind of seeing a little bit of a return to that now with our generation. America put it into their families. 
So the New York Times, uh, there was a marriage section, and they would basically boast. There was a lot of boasting about one person marrying another person and what families they came from. That was the New York Times about 60, 70 years ago. Today, um, if you read any obituary, if you read any type of nuptial uh, announcement, it's all about what you do. Today, we've placed and poured out that sense of worth, the desire to find a sense of worth and value and significance in what? It's in our jobs. It's in our salaries. Because we're looking for something always to say, yes, I've done this. I've arrived. I'm worthy. I'm good enough. I'm okay. I'm justified. We're looking for something to trust in. We're looking for something to rest in about ourselves. And so, pathetically, we look for it in our salaries, which only lasts as long as your salary lasts or your job lasts. We're, we're looking for it in our pedigrees. We're looking for it in the size of our homes. Those things, you know, they're not easy to get. You work very hard to get these things. They're not easy to get, which is why they're easy to boast in when you get it. But it's also easy to fail. And when you fail, what happens? There's this self-loathing, self-hatred when you fail. You need to boast. You want to boast. Imagine a life, imagine a life where you don't need to boast. It's going to make you a kinder person. It's going to make you a wiser person. It's going to make you a calmer person. It's going to make you a funnier person. You know why? Because you can laugh at yourself. You can laugh. You see all the ironies in your life. And you can laugh at yourself. It's going to make you a more gracious person, a more winsome person. How? How's it going to make you a more winsome person? I'm going to show you uh, three very quick examples. One, it's going to make you more content. Is everything a gift in your life? Do you really not deserve anything that you have, anything that you are in your life? Then you're going to trust God more. You're going to trust the Lord more. And you're going to say, you know what? Father, you know best. I mean, if you read Ephesians chapter 1, God has chosen you. He has adopted you. You are a son. He has redeemed you. He has forgiven you. He has marked you with a seal. Right? Those are the promises. That's... He's given you every spiritual blessing in Christ. All those things he's given you in Christ. If you trust that, you say, Father, you know best. Ephesians chapter 1 at the end says, God has placed all things, even history, your past, your present, even the future, the history that we are experiencing. He has placed all those things under the feet of Christ, which means that every experience you've ever had contributes to the church for the church. It says he did that for the church. If you believe that, you can say, Father, you know best. You hold history in your hands. You know best. I don't need this one thing that I'm so desperately craving. I want it. I don't need it. If you believe that, there goes the anger. There goes the, the complaining. There goes the self-hatred. There goes the pride, right? The jealousy. It's going to make you content. Number two, it's going to make you more at peace. If you trust that the sovereign Lord, the sovereign God knows best, that everything in your life is a gift, you're going to worry less because what you received is a gift. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. And I know, I don't want to diminish how hard you work. I'm a pretty hard worker too, right? You can't work yourself into the ultimate acceptance you're looking for. You can't work yourself 
into the ultimate joy and delight that you think you're going to get through that thing. Now, if there is something in your heart that you're, we all have one. The Bible says we all do. We're all worshiping something. If it's not the Father, we're all worshiping. Friends, Bob Dylan said that too. You don't have to be a Christian to know that. We're all looking for that one thing. And if you trust that the sovereign Lord in his portion, in his abundant love for you, will give you everything you need because you know that God has chosen you and adopted you and redeemed you and forgiven you and you are sons and he delights in you. You are his treasure, the glorious inheritance in the saints. Ephesians chapter 1, right? And then towards the end, everything, all of history, falls under the feet of Christ for the church, if you really believe that. That everything you have is by sheer grace. Even though you were dead in sin, dead in transgressions, if you knew that even there, dead, helpless, cannot do anything, God has raised you up with Christ. If you trust that, you would have poise, greater poise. You would have integrity, greater integrity. You would have character, greater character. Especially when things go wrong. Especially if things go wrong and actually when things go right you would have greater poise. Thirdly, it's going to make you more winsome. If your work ethic is what you boast in, then how do you look at lazy people? How do you view lazy people? If your figure or your looks are what you're boasting in, how do you view unattractive people in your life? And who are you attracted to? If your popularity is what you boast in, then how do you treat people who are different than you, who have nothing to offer you? You have nothing to gain from these people. But if we're all saved by sheer grace, then you know you can't rest in your work ethic. You can't rest in your looks or your figure. You can't rest in your status. You can't rest in what, you know, what blessings you receive. You can't rest in your figure, your work ethic, your looks, your popularity. And people then, as a result, are not tools that are used to feed your ego because what happens? God has treasured you and loved you with an everlasting love, and you know. You're filled. You're full. There's a delight. You know that God delights in you. So these people, people in your life are not tools to feed your ego. <clears throat> that means that that opens the door for you to have genuine relationships in your life. Relationships that where you can just love them because you love them. Not because they give you something in return. Not because they get you something in return. Friends, this is why racism exists. This is why classism exists. In fact, this is why we see bullying, why politics creates such divisions in our society today, right? Because people are constantly vying to get things out of one another, and if they can't, then you're my enemy. If you're, you're blocking me, why would I love you? You are blocking me. We just think that there are some people in our lives that are just beneath us, and we treat them that way. But if you held to the belief that you are a, tr a sinner, dead, enslaved, but saved, redeemed, forgiven by grace, grace alone, there goes the superiority. Because you did nothing to earn it. And you receive the utmost acceptance, the true acceptance that you're, you know, C.S. Lewis says, it's like you're opening every door in your life. 
looking for that one thing, looking to belong, and you're looking for every door. And then one day you pass through a door and you realize that this is the door. When you walk through, this is the place that you were meant to be all your life. You found it. You're filled. You don't care what's in those other doors. You know that anything else is lesser. Anything else pales in comparison to what you found, to what you've entered into. There goes the superiority. Even, there goes even the defensiveness. You'd be even more open, more inviting. How do you get there? We talked about where we've been, dead in our transgressions. We talked about where God desires us to be, more content, more at peace, more winsome. A life where we recognize that it and trust that it is by grace we have been saved through faith and this not from ourselves, it is the gift of God. How do you get there? What's the bridge from where we were to a life that God desires for us to live? And he says this in verse 4, it's because of his great love, because of his mercy, he made us alive with Christ. And in verse 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. The Bible says Jesus was raised from the dead. And when he was raised from the dead, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. What does that mean? In ancient times, um, only conquering heroes ever sat at the right hand of the king. If you were a hero for a nation, if you were a hero for a people, you had the place of honor. The right hand of the king was a place of honor and authority. You were given that seat. You sat because it's over. You conquered. It's done. Right? Sitting in those ancient times meant the work is done. But he sat at the right hand because it was a place of honor. And that's why the disciples are fighting over who gets to sit at Jesus' right hand in heaven. Right? That's what they were saying. Or right hand in the kingdom. You sat because it was completed. You sat at the right hand because it was the place of honor. On the cross, Jesus Christ conquered over death. On the cross, Jesus Christ emerged victorious. And so Jesus was seated at the right hand of God the Father. But the text, this is the amazing thing. The text says that God seated us with him at the right hand. Paul says we are seated with Christ in Christ Jesus, there it is again, in Christ, union. Throughout Ephesians 1 and now Ephesians chapter 2, we see this phrase over and over and over. We are chosen in Christ. We are forgiven in Christ. We are redeemed in Christ. We are sons in Christ. He says, you are marked with a seal in Christ. You are the glorious inheritance in Christ, he says. Again and again, he says, over and over, more or less, what he's saying and emphasizing in Ephesians chapter 1, salvation from God's perspective, you have been placed in Christ. That means there's an access to Christ, an access to God in Christ through Jesus, because Jesus Christ had access. There is a oneness, an intimacy in Christ, because Jesus Christ was one with the Father. There's this organic oneness in our relationship with God because we are placed in Christ. But we also said that there's this legal oneness. Like a marriage, there's this forensic legal oneness. We are with him legally. That means that whatever Jesus earned, now you receive. Wherever Jesus lives, now you live. 
Whatever Jesus accomplished, now you accomplish. The ancients totally understood this. The ancient people understood this. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, we have probably the most famous passage, if not one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. We have David. We have Goliath. Goliath, he waits for Israel to send one man to come and fight him. Goliath is the champion of his people. He wants one man to come down and fight him. The best person, their representative. It, it wasn't army against army. To save your people, to save your resources, you chose the best among you to fight the best among your opponent. Goliath is waiting because he is their legal representative, their legal champion. He's waiting for Israel's representative, Israel's legal champion. It's David, scrawny little David. Goliath represents the talent and the power and the training, the equipment, the advancement. He's perfect in that way. David, he is God's choice, God's chosen representative for his people. He is their legal representative. In other words, if David loses, Israel is dead. If David loses, Israel is enslaved. If David wins, the enemies, the Philistines, are conquered. If David is victorious, Israel is victorious. If David wins, Israel wins. He is their champion. He's their legal representative. The ancients totally understood this. Paul's saying that because Jesus Christ is our champion, Jesus Christ is our conqueror, he is our hero, he is seated at the right hand of God, the king, and we are seated with him. God delights in you. You are at the right hand of God, seated with him. God delights in you. God honors you as if you conquered, as if you emerged victorious. Do you understand that? That is an amazing thing because we did nothing. The only thing we ever contributed to that was what? The sin, the brokenness, the loss, and the death. And yet we are seated at the right hand of God with Jesus. That's an amazing thing. It is by grace we have been saved. It goes on. God delights in you, honors you, loves you the way he loves his own son. Verse 7, it's expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The word kindness in Greek is more than just like a feeling. It's more than a sentiment. It's an action. It's a sentiment, a sense that is committed to action. In other words, it's like this. It's saying, I love you and bringing flowers with it. I love you and paying a cost with a ring. Putting words to committed action. How does he do this? How does God show and express his kindness to us in Christ Jesus as he seats us at the right hand alongside Jesus? Luke chapter 4, we have Jesus. Jesus is in the wilderness, and Jesus is hungry. He's craving. And Satan comes and tempts him. And he says, I want you to feed yourself. Take these stones, turn them to bread. I want you to feed yourself. I want you to feed your ego. Save yourself for once. He takes him to this high place, and he says, I want you to glorify yourself. I want you to glorify your ego. I want you to build yourself. I want you to save yourself. I want you to build yourself. Then he takes him to another high point, and he says, I want you to throw yourself down because the Bible itself says and promises that God himself will save you. 
I want you to protect yourself. I want you to preserve yourself, protect your ego, defend your ego. You can feed yourself or save yourself. You can uh, build yourself. You can preserve or protect yourself. You can do all these things, and you won't ever have to suffer. You don't ever have to go to the cross. And Jesus, through Scripture, each time resists. Each time the craving is there, and he resists. He resists through Scripture. That's all he's got. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's what he says. He resists the devil, even though he knows that by resisting the devil, he will go and experience an even greater suffering, the ultimate suffering. Why? You know what he's doing? He's taking our place. He's our champion. He goes into the wilderness and fights the battle in our place. Jesus Christ, in essence, took our place, our seat, our punishment, the wrath of God for our sins that we deserved. We are the objects of wrath, verse 3, right? And, on, and so on the cross, Jesus Christ becomes the sole champion. He goes into the wilderness. He goes down to battle. He becomes the sole object of wrath. And when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken by the Father. He was struck down, cut off from the Father, rejected. And he suffered hell. You know what hell is? Hell is complete separation. Complete separation from God. The loneliness, the darkness, the misery. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I am miserable. And I am lonely. I am alone. And he died alone. The world is mocking him. God himself forsaken him. He died alone. Why? Jesus Christ got the hell that we deserved so that we can get the position and the seat that he deserved. We got the honor. We got the glory. We got the delight. There it is. That's the gospel. That's what it is. We get the honor, ultimate honor. We get the glory, ultimate glory. We get the delight, ultimate delight. Jesus Christ saved us by emptying himself of all his glory, everything that he is, everything that he has, he sacrificed. The cross is the ultimate demonstration of the selflessness and the love and the grace of God. Your life, your advancement at my ultimate cost. This is ultimate love committed to action, the ultimate kindness. Look at the kindness of Jesus. Look at the love of Jesus. Look at the grace of God. Jesus. When you see that he did that for you, there goes the self-centeredness, there goes the pride, there goes the ego, because the king came down and emptied everything of himself, including his blood. We say, I don't want to tithe. Jesus Christ tithed his blood. And when you see him doing that for you, releasing his eternal purse strings for you, so that you would have the honor and you would sit with him at the right hand as if you are the conqueror, you are the champion and the hero. This is the glory that we've been looking for all our lives and we are filled because Jesus Christ emptied himself. And so your ego is gone. You're filled. Your selfishness is gone. You're filled. You have every provision found in Christ. When you look at the cross, that is every provision poured out for you abundantly in Christ. No more need to feed your ego. No more need to boast. What is that boasting? What is your accomplishment? Will it save you? No. 
That is the one thing you need. And it's been given to you already. You just receive. It takes no work to receive, right? The Apostle Paul says this in Galatians chapter 6. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Are you offered a lot of money? Are you offered an incredible salary? Are you offered honor and glory? Are you offered intimacy? Because all those things in this world, if we follow the ways of the world, it's going to cost you. You may be receiving money, but it's going to cost you your family, and it's going to cost you your life, your soul. Paul says, I boast in Christ. That is what justifies me. That is what I'm proud of, what Christ has done for me. I have the one thing that I need to know that I have arrived, that I am worthy. Jesus Christ is my validation. Jesus Christ is my conquering champion, and he has won. Delight in him. Look to Christ. Because he won, you won. The Apostle Paul says, because he died, you died. Because he rose again and was seated at the right hand, we rise again and will be seated with him. We are. We already have that position. We're already there. Jesus Christ in John chapter 17 says, Father, may they be with me. It's not like he was saying, I want to just airlift everybody when I resurrect. That's not what he was saying. He's saying, you have a place with me. Because he's selfless, you can starve your ego. You can starve your selfishness. What happens is when that happens, an amazing thing happens. You start to turn yourself towards others. And that is the advancement of God's kingdom. That's why we're here. That's why we hear the sirens. It's uncomfortable at times. It's a sacrifice. That's why we give. It's a sacrifice. All these things are a spiritual act of worship. Will you come and worship? Will you lay yourselves down, everything, at the feet of Christ? Let's pray.